0: Well, everyone gets a trophy. (laughs) Everyone gets an A. Everyone is a winner. There are no winners and losers anymore. This has become the norm in many a school and many sports. In my book, When the Crosses Are Gone, I tell a story that told by my friend Dennis Prager, the radio show host, uh, about a friend of Dennis's. Whose 13 year old son was playing baseball on a team. And uh, he was watching, and toward the ninth inning, he saw the score that his son's team was winning by a lopsided margin. It was 24 to 7. And then toward the end, he looked up at the scoreboard, and the score was changed. It's now 0 0. Well, at the end of the game, he walked down to the official and uh, asked at the field there, he said, is the scoreboard broken? And the official said, no, the scoreboard is not broken. But the coach of the winning team asked the scorekeeper to change the score to 0-0. He came to that decision after talking to some of the parents on the losing team who were concerned that their loss might hurt the feelings of the kids. It's a microcosm of what's happening around us. Feelings now trump all our values and our value system. But my purpose in sharing this with you it has a deeper meaning than that. It's because today I want to highlight that when it comes to the spiritual war, there are winners and there are losers. When it comes to spiritual warfare life, I can absolutely assure you without a shadow of doubt that not everyone gets a trophy. There's no such thing that everybody gets an A. As a matter of fact, I was thinking about this this week, and I thought about something I read many years ago about this NBA team that was always losing. And the coach just really was at wit's end. How can I motivate them? How can I give them a pep talk? How can I get them to win again? And so in the locker room, he began to talk to them, and he looked at the center, and he said to him, you go out there and pretend to be the best scorer in all of basketball history. And then he turned to the defensive guard, and he said, you go out there and pretend to be the best defensive guard in all of basketball history. And then he turned to the guard himself, and he said to him, he said, Now you, you go out there and pretend that you can run offensive better than any guard in all of basketball history. So they went out and played the game, and sure enough, they lost by 17 points. And so the coach was pacing the floor in the locker room, trying to think, what will I say to them now? What will I say to them after all the pep talk I gave them? And What will I say? Right at that moment, the guard comes in and put his arm around him and said, don't worry about it, coach. Pretend that we won. (laughs) Now, beloved, there is no pretending in the spiritual war. Listen, I'm not being insensitive. I'm being truthful. Those who pretend that there is no winning and losing in the spiritual battle, in the spiritual war, are going to find themselves in a world of hurt. Now, there are some who pretend that the spiritual warfare just does not exist. There are some who pretend that um, war between the spirit and the flesh on the inside of us just do not exist back in 1938, when Neville Chamberlain was the then prime minister of England. And Neville Chamberlain was pretending that Hitler was an okay guy, that Hitler was not a threat, upon which Winston Churchill chided him, and he said that choice is between dishonor and war from which we will have victory. You choose dishonor, we choose war. In reality, Churchill was realizing that refusing to acknowledge reality and pretending is wrong and will lead to disasters. But listen to me very carefully, please, because here is a distinction and the distinctive characteristics of the spiritual war in the spiritual war, it's not what we do that brings us victory, but to whom we surrender brings us victory. Amen? You see, partial obedience, selective obedience, seasonal obedience, part-time obedience, temporary obedience, occasional obedience, they are sure ways of losing the spiritual war. Only a total and unconditional obedience will guarantee us every time, every time, that we will be victorious. Please turn with me, if you haven't already, to Exodus 17, as we look at those few verses together, 8 to 16. Here you find the people of Israel confronting a different enemy that's about to destroy them. This is very different from Pharaoh. I'm going to explain that a whole lot more, so listen carefully because I want to stop, in fact, for a minute and talk to you about the seriousness of this new enemy, the Amalekites. It is so serious, and Moses took it so seriously, that at his farewell speech in Deuteronomy 25, you know, when the Lord told him he's going to take him home, Moses gave a speech to the people of Israel, a goodbye speech, a farewell speech. And during that speech, To show you the seriousness of this event 40 years earlier, he said to them, Remember what the Amalekites did to you on the way out of Egypt, how he attacked you and on the way, and when you were faint and weary and cut off at the rear, especially those who lagged behind you. They did not fear God. A serious enemy, equally serious to Pharaoh. If Pharaoh and his army were a type of Satan and his demons. The Amalekites and their army are a type of the flesh, the old nature, which the Bible calls the flesh. The Word of God, particularly in Galatians chapter 5, verse 7, the Apostle Paul tells us that there is a war going on inside of us, It is the flesh against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and they are in a state of war. (laughs) Romans chapter 7, when Paul becomes so overwhelmed with that war inside between the Spirit and the flesh, he comes to the conclusion that he cannot win that battle on his own strength, so he concludes that victory is not what we do, but to whom we depend on whom we depend, and to whom we surrender, and whom we obey. Victory is not how clever we are, but how surrendered we are. Victory is not dependent on our ability, but our availability. Now, don't miss this. When Christ comes into a person's life, and I pray that if Christ has not come into your life, today will be the day to receive Christ as your only Savior and Lord. But when Christ comes to dwell in us, He gives us new nature, divine nature. So what happens to the old nature with which we are born? Oh, it does not die. But rather, He gives us the power in order that minute by minute, we can muzzle that old nature that we can weaken that old nature. When you become born again of the Spirit of God, the flesh does not just bow out and go out, <laughs> but by the power of the Holy Spirit is given to us, that power of the flesh is kept in chains. When you come to Christ, the old nature, the flesh, does not say, hey, I'm going on a long vacation, enjoy yourself. no. But we are given the authority to subdue it. We are given the authority to tranquilize it. We are given the authority to overcome it. And so, as I said, if Pharaoh and his army were a type of Satan, the Amalekites are a type of the flesh, the old nature with which we are born. The Egyptians were total strangers to Israel. They didn't even live near each other. They were lived apart. They're totally different in every way. They're strangers. They're outsiders. Ah, but the Amalekites, they're related to Israel. (laughs) The Amalekites trace their ancestry to Esau, Israel's brother. Satan is at the outside spiritual enemy who attacks us from the outside, but the flesh is an insider operative. Satan is a foreign enemy who comes to us from the outside, but the flesh, the old nature, belongs to our common stock. You see, the descendants of Jacob, or Israel, and the descendants of Esau, they were brothers. <laughs> their ancestors were brothers. They had the same father and the same mother. But they had conflicting loyalties, even in their young age, just like Cain and Abel. Same father, same mother, but they had conflicting loyalties. Jacob, or Israel, loyalty was to Yahweh, but Esau's loyalty was to himself. In the same way, our two natures inside of us, they are in conflict with each other. The old nature wants to please self. The new nature wants to please the Lord. The old nature's loyalty is to self. But the new nature in Christ's loyalty is to Christ. The old nature wants to run wild, have no boundaries, no limitations. Oh, but the new nature is guarded and guided by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. The old nature ultimately seeks self-destruction, but the new nature constantly seeks renewal of our mind on a daily basis in Christ. The Amalekites heard the great things that God did to their brother Israel, and the spirit of envy raged inside of them. The spirit of envy wanted to destroy what God has chosen. Isn't that always the case? Spirit of envy always wants to destroy things that God does. I've seen it for too many years. Spirit of envy gets in and want to really not only hamper but really destroy what God has done. The spirit of envy wants to terminate what God called into being. Be very careful with the spirit of envy. At that moment, Moses knew what to do. He knew exactly what to do. He listened to God, and he knew what to do. And I pray to God, not a single person here who would say, I don't know what to do when the flesh begins to war against my spirit. I don't know what to do when I need victory from God, when I need victory over my old nature, when I need victory over the flesh, when I need victory over that lower nature. Beloved, listen to me. In the times when the flesh starts warring against the spirit, There are two things that you must do immediately. First of all, you go on high place and seek the only power that could really give you victory. And secondly, give your best into the battle. Even Yeshua, Jesus, Yeshua. Just like Nehemiah told the people of God, he said, you build with one hand and you guard with the other. Just as our Lord Jesus Christ himself said, he said, you watch and you pray. We go up to God to receive power, and then to go down into the enemy and fight. We go on our knees, and then we get up and go for the battle. Spend time with God, then stand firm in the truth of the Word of God. Beloved, I don't have to tell you that today we have so many… Divisions among God's people, among the Christians, even the way they view things and the worldview. And there are some who are activists, 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 activism is all they're involved with, and there's nothing wrong with activism. I recommend it. But then there are others who say, oh, just pray, 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 don't do anything, use prayer as an excuse for doing nothing. And they sit on their blessed assurance and do nothing. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible said you got to do both you have to watch, and you have to pray. You can be active, but you must always active with the power of God in prayer that He gives you, because that's dangerous. Three secrets to victory over the flesh. Here they are, very simple, kneeling, standing, and waving the flag. Now, I don't necessarily mean when I say kneeling, physical kneeling, although it is a great posture to be in because it reminds you to be kneeling on the inside. But as some people can kneel physically, but on the inside, they're standing so stiff. But I'm talking about the attitude of kneeling, the attitude of the heart in kneeling. Look at what Moses did. He lifted up his staff to the Lord, and God said to him, "'You go up there on the hill.'" And you hold this up? Beloved, this is an expression of surrender. This is a posture of dependence on God. So kneeling here is a figure of speech, meaning that you have to be in a posture and in a position of acknowledging that victory would only come from surrendering to God. Beloved, the winning over the flesh will only come from the kneeling of surrender. Now, the image of kneeling here, it's an image of a camel that is kneeling. And the camel kneels on all four. They may be the ship of the desert, and they do great things and carry loads and everything else, but you don't want to be anywhere near them. For number one, they stink anyway. But uh, <laughs> but the word comes from a camel kneeling. You see, camel is high. Donkeys are low, but camels are very, very high. And, and some of them, really, y- you can't even reach. How are you going to load all the goods that the camel has to carry when that camel is so high you can't reach it? So what happens? The camel has to kneel in order to receive the goods that they're loading on the camel. They have to kneel. And when the camel kneels, receives all the goods. You see, when you kneel of surrender to God, you're saying, Lord, load me up. Lord, load me with your blessings. Lord, load me with your strength. Lord, load me with your grace. Oh, Lord, load me with victory. In the making of the classical movie Ben-Hur, there is a backstory that took place during the filming of that movie. Charleston Heston, was he knew how to ride horses, but he did not know how to ride chariots. He has to ride a chariot. And so he spent days and days learning how to ride the chariot. And so he learned it. And finally, he went to um, the director, and he said, I now learned how to ride a chariot, and I can ride the chariot, but I don't think I can win at the same time. The director looked at him, he said, Charlton. He said, you stay in the race. I will make sure you win. (laughs) Now, beloved, that's what the Lord is saying to Moses. Moses, you be sure to keep your hands of surrender up in the air, and I'll make sure you win. Kneeling is the secret of winning. Secondly, standing in unity together is the secret of victory. Most of you know what the Scripture said about united in prayer. Now, beloved, if we're going to win over the flesh, we have to learn how to become united in prayer. Now, you must understand, those who have been listening to me for a long time, that you know I have never, ever, ever in nearly 30 years in this pulpit, never, never, never have I Ever said that I know everything that is to be known about the mystery or the power of effect and the effectiveness of corporate prayer. I never claimed that. Oh, but I believe it, I've experienced it. I know on the authority of the word of God that God responds to unity in prayer. And that is why Jesus said, When two or three gather in my name. You see, I don't understand the power and the mystery, but I do understand. That's why Jesus said, when two of you agree on something, that's the minimum, two people. Look what happened here in Exodus 17. When Joshua went down to fight the battle, the whole future of Israel's leadership went to the battlefield. Did you get that? The whole future went into that battlefield. There is none of this stuff about giving God the leftover, giving God the crumbs, giving God our second best, or giving God what nobody else wanted, or giving God the weak and the infirm. They gave their best to God. They gave their future to God. They gave it all in the battle to win over this enemy. And while Moses himself was commanded to go up and stand in prayer, the future went down to fight. But even Moses, the great Moses, he could not do it alone. He had to keep this intercessory prayer of surrender posture. He could not do it by himself. Aaron and her had to come on each side and buttress his arms, because many times his arms got tired and shaking. By the way, a Jewish commentator said that her was actually Miriam's husband. That means Miriam is Moses' sister. It was his brother-in-law. So Moses' brother-in-law. So he had his brother and his brother-in-law on each side of them. And they both needed to hold Moses' arms up. I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine this. This is taking place, okay, on top of that mountain. And some of the Israelites out of selfish ambition, they said, let's go there and pull on Moses' arm. Imagine that with me, okay? There's a lot of people who do that the leadership. "Eh, Let's just pull their arms down. Let's cut them at the knees. Sadly, people in churches, they want to pull the arms of the intercessors and those who intercede on behalf of the kingdom of God. But the Bible said, as long as Moses has his hand up in the air, the people of God had the upper hand. But when Moses' hand came down, the Amalekites got the upper hand. Beloved, listen, listen, this is important. You and I can no more stand alone against the flesh, the devil, and the world than a snowflake can survive on peach tree in the middle of July. We cannot do it. We need to stand together. We need to uphold each other. We need to be praying for one another. We need to support each other. Because for us to win, we have to have Moses praying. We have to have, if we want to win, the support of Aaron and her. If we win against the flesh, the world, and the devil, we have to have the courage of Joshua. We cannot win without kneeling. We cannot win without standing together. Thirdly, we cannot win without waving the flag. Without waving the flag. After victory, the Bible said, Moses, cut and run. Right? No? After victory, Moses said, okay, back to our, where we were, boys. Come on, let's, let's go back to our normal way of life. No! Moses built an altar, and he called it Yahweh Nessie. The Lord is my flag, or the Lord is my banner. Moses wanted to fly the flag. He wanted to wave the flag that has the word on it, Yahweh Nessie, Jehovah Nessie. I want to tell you this. It is the Lord who gives you victory. So you need to wave his flag. It's the Lord who gives you power. You need to wave His flag. It's the Lord who gives you strength. It's the Lord who gives you all of the blessings that you have. It is the Lord who guides you. It is the Lord who dwells in you. It is the Lord who is your flag. The Lord is your banner. The Lord is your all in all. Don't be ashamed of waving His flag. Now, as uh, some of you know, our family scattered, and uh, some of our grandchildren were born in England, so they're a British subjects. And uh, we had a, a wonderful reunion of sorts last summer, and I began to point to both the British grandchildren and the American grandchildren as we're standing in front of Buckingham Palace. I said, you know, you don't have to find out, you don't have to ask anybody if the queen is inside the palace or not. I said, how come? I said, see that flag over there flying on that palace? It's always an indication that the queen is in residence. That's how you know if the queen is in her residence. And my beloved friend, I believe with all my heart, because that moment it really hit me as I was explaining that to them, that when Jesus is residing in you in the person of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is in control of your life. You don't have to tell people and pull them by the lapel and say, I'm a Christian, although we must witness. But you don't have to be vocal. You don't have to do anything because they're going to know, they're going to see the flag, and they're going to know that the king is a residence in your life. The flag of the joy of the Lord is all over you. The flag of the peace of God is within you. The flag of the love of God surrounds you. The flag of victory over the flesh rides high all over you. I want to tell you this as I conclude. And I will conclude by uh, telling you a, a historical incident that had taken place. I prayed all week. Lord God, please... Help us to understand. Help us to have the courage, not only have victory, but wave your flag. Especially now when waving the flag of Jesus is dangerous. It can call you every name in the book. And that has been my prayer. Help us to wave Jehovah This incident took place at 7 p.m. on October 20th, 1968. There were a few thousand spectators remaining in the Mexico City Olympic Stadium. It was almost getting dark, not quite, but almost dark, as the last of the marathon runners who have ran 26 miles, as you know, they come after 26, they run one lap in the stadium, and the last ones were coming in. Finally, the spectators were surprised to hear the wail of a police siren coming and um, Lo and behold, as their eyes were fixed on the gate of the stadium, a lone runner wearing the color of the African country of Tanzania. He comes in there hobbling, struggling into the stadium. His name was John Stephen Ahwari. He was the last contestant in this 26-mile marathon. His leg that has been injured in a fall in the halfway time, it was swollen and, and bleeding, and it looked like it's been crudely, crudely bandaged. But he comes in, in this final lap, and he hobbles all around the stadium, and the spectators rose to their feet as if he is the gold medal winner as he crossed into the finish line, Hobbling. And, of course, as soon as he arrived at the finish line, the microphone was shoved into his face. Why did you not quit? Here's what he said. He said, my country did not send me 5,000 miles away from home to start the race. My country sent me 5,000 miles away from home to finish the race. My beloved friend, listen to me, please. When you stand under Jehovah Nissi, Yahweh Nissi, you might get blooded in the battle. You might get exhausted in the battle. But because you know that God did not call you to start the battle, but to finish it, you will persevere. You will prevail. You will not be defeated. You will wave His flag, Yahweh Nissi, all the way to the finish line. May it be so. May it be so. May it be so for everyone who's here today. May it be so. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.